Hi, this is Day for Night with Caridad Svinch, a series that looks at the intersection between theater and poetry in the wilderness, in the edgelands. I don't usually date uh, these recordings uh, officially when I'm speaking, but I will today. It is February 24th, 2024, and the poet Lynn Eugenian has passed away, towering figure in the world of U.S. contemporary poetry, a uh, figure associated with the language language writing school of poets, uh, a movement of poets that flourished in the Bay Area in the 1970s, uh, poets that um, focused on non-narrative forms, collaborative practices, progressive politics, and emphasized the materiality of language and its social dimension. Um, I'll probably read a little bit from Hegenian's work, um, poetic work, um, but I wanted to first begin with a talk they gave in 1983, which was a response to um, issues raised in the, in the writing community around language, gender, and power. Um, and this is an essay quite famous uh, of Lynn's. Uh, it's called The Rejection of Closure. Uh, it's, a, it's an essay that I return to often uh, as a playwright, and uh, it's ins continually inspiring, and I hope it inspires you as poets, writers, thinkers out in the world. I'm going to start with, well, maybe I'll just start from the beginning of it. So this is um, uh, Lynn speaking so, and sort of contextualizing this, uh, this essay. The Rejection of Closure was really originally written as a talk and given at 544 Natoma Street, San Francisco on April 17, 1983. The Who is Speaking panel discussion had taken place several weeks earlier. And with the Poetry and Philosophy issue of Poetics Journal, Volume 3, about to come out, Barrett Watton and I had just decided to devote Poetics Journal number 4 to the theme of women and language. Within the writing community, discussions of gender were frequent and they were addressed both to perceptible, practical problems, instances of injustice, immediately affecting people's work and lives, and to longer term questions of power, in particular, the ethics of meaning. Carla Harriman's signal work, The Middle, was published this same year. Originally given as a talk, it is an organizationally radiant critique, one might even say trashing, of conventional patriarchal power structures. In The Middle, the power of authority gives way to the power of invention, with its plenitudes of focus, and to the power of performance. The subject position is in the middle, an uncontainable presence making meaning. In the rejection of closure, I give no examples of a closed text, but I can offer several. The coercive epiphonic mode in some contemporary lyric poetry can serve as a negative model 
with its smug pretension to universality and its tendency to cast the poet as guardian to truth. And detective fiction can serve as a positive model, presenting an ultimately stable, calm and calming and fundamentally unepiphonic vision of the world. In either case, however pleasurable its effects, closure is a fiction. One of the amenities that falsehood and fantasy provide. But if we have positive as well as negative models for closure, why reject it? Is there something about the world that demands openness? Is there something in language that compels and implements the rejection of closure? I can only begin uh, posteriori by perceiving the world as vast and overwhelming. Each moment stands under enormous vertical and horizontal pressure of information, potent with ambiguity, meaningful, unfixed, certainly incomplete. What saves this from becoming a vast, undifferentiated mass of data and situation is one's ability to make distinctions. The open text is one which both acknowledges the vastness of the world and is formally differentiating. It is form that provides an opening. Writing's initial situation, its point of origin, is often characterized and always complicated by opposing impulses in the writer and by seeming dilemma that language creates and then cannot resolve. The writer experiences a conflict between a desire to satisfy a demand for boundedness, for containment and coherence, and a simultaneous desire for free, unhampered access to the world, prompting a correspondingly open response to it. Curiously, the term inclusivity isn't applicable to both, though the connotative emphasis is different for each. The impulse to boundedness demands circumscription, and that in turn requires that a distinction be made between inside and outside, between the relevant and the, for the particular writing at hand, confusing and irrelevant and meaningless. The desire for uninhabited access and response to the world and encyclopedic impulse, on the other hand, hates to leave anything out. The essential question here concerns the writer's subject position. The impasse, meanwhile, is that is both language's creative condition and its problem can be described as the disjuncture between words and meaning, but at a particularly material level, one at which the writer is faced with the necessity of making formal decisions devising an appropriate structure for the work, anticipating the constraints it will put into play, etc. In the context of the ever-regenerating plenitude of language's resources in their infinite combinations. Writing's forms are not merely shapes, but forces. Formal questions are about dynamics. They ask how, where, and why the writing moves. What are the types, directions, number, and velocities of a work's motion? The material aporia objectifies the poem in the context of ideas and of language itself. These areas of conflict are not neatly parallel. Form does not necessarily achieve closure. 
nor does raw materiality provide openness. Indeed, the conjunction of form with radical openness may be what can offer a version of the paradise for which writing often yearns, a flowering focus on a distinct infinity. For the sake of clarity, I will offer a tentative characterization of the terms open and closed. We can say that a closed text is one in which all the elements of the work are directed toward a single reading of it. Each element confirms that reading and delivers the text from any lurking ambiguity. In the open text, meanwhile, all the elements of the work are maximally excited. Here it is because ideas and things exceed without deserting argument that they have taken into the dimension of the work. Though they may be different in different texts, depending on other elements in the work and by all means on the intention of the writer, it is not hard to discover devices, structural devices, that may serve to open a poetic text. One set of such devices has to do with arrangement and particularly with rearrangement within the work. The open text, by definition, is open to the world, and particularly to the reader. It invites participation, rejects the authority of the writer over the reader, and thus, by analogy, the authority implicit in other social, economic, cultural hierarchies. It speaks for writing that is generative rather than directive. The writer relinquishes total control and challenges authority as a principle and control as a motive. So I'll repeat that. The writer relinquishes total control and challenges authority as a principle and control as a motive. The open text often emphasizes or foregrounds process, either the process of the original composition or of subsequent compositions by readers, and thus resists the cultural tendencies that seek to identify and fix material and turn it into a product. That is, it resists reduction and commodification. As Luce Irigari says, positing this tendency within a feminine sphere of discourse, quote, it is really a question of another economy which diverts the linearity of a project, undermines the target, target object of a desire, explodes the polarization of desire on only one pleasure, and disconcerts fidelity to only one discourse. Fieldwork, where words and lines are distributed irregularly on the page, such as Robert Grenier's poster map entitled Cambridge Mass and Bruce Andrews' Love Song 41, also originally published as a poster, are obvious examples of works in which the order of the reading is not imposed in advance. Any reading of these works is an improvisation. One moves through the work, not in straight lines, but in curves, swirls, and across intersections to words that catch the eye or attract attention repeatedly. Repetition conventionally used to unify a text or harmonize its parts as if 
returning melody to the tonic. Instead, in these works, and somewhat differently in a work like My, My Life, challenges our inclination to isolate, identify, and limit the burden of meaning given to an event, the sentence, or line. Here, where certain phrases recur in the work, recontextualized and with new emphasis, repetition disrupts the initial apparent meaning scheme. The initial reading is adjusted, meaning is set in motion, emended and extended, and the rewriting the repetition becomes, postpones completion of the thought indefinitely. But there are more complex forms of juxtaposition. My intention, I don't mean to suggest that I succeeded, in a subsequent work entitled Resistance, was to write a lyric poem in a long form, that is to achieve maximum vertical intensity, the single moment into which the idea rushes, and maximum horizontal extensivity. Ideas cross the landscape and become the horizon and weather. To myself, I propose the paragraph as a unit representing a single moment of time, a single moment in the mind, its content, all the thoughts, thought particles, impressions, impulses, all the diverse particular and contradictory elements that are included in an active and emotional mind at any given instant. For the moment, for the writer, the poem is a mind. To prevent the work from disintegrating into its separate parts, scattering sentence rubble haphazardly on the waste heap, I use various syntactic devices to foreground or create the conjunction between ideas. Statements become interconnected by being grammatically congruent. Unlike things made alike grammatically become meaningful in common and jointly. The poem Resistance began like this. Patience is laid out on my papers. Its visuals are gainful and equally square. Two dozen jets take off into the night. Outdoors, a car goes uphill in a genial low gear. The flow of thoughts, impossible. These are the defamiliarization techniques with which we are so familiar. There are six sentences here, three of which, beginning with the first, are constructed similarly. Subject, verb, prepositional phrase. The three prepositions are on, into, and in, which in isolation seem similar, but used here have very different meanings. On is locational, on my papers. Into is metaphorical and atmospheric, into the night. In is atmospheric and qualitative in a genial low gear. There are a pair of inversions in effect here. The unlike are made similar syntactically and the like are sundered semantically. Patience, which might be a quality of a virtuous character attendant to work, quote, it is laid out on my papers, unquote, might also be solitaire, a card game played by an idler who is avoiding attention to work. Two dozen chets can only take off together in formation. They are, quote, laid out, unquote, on the night sky. A car goes uphill. Its movement upward parallels that of the jets. But whereas their formation is martial, the single car is somewhat domestic, genial, and innocuous. The image in the first pair of sentences is horizontal. The upward movement of the next two sentences describes a vertical plane, upended on or intersecting the horizontal one. The flow of thoughts runs down the vertical and comes to rest impossible. 
The work shifts between horizontal and vertical landscapes, and the corresponding sentences, the details of each composed on its particular plane, form distinct semantic fields. In fact, I would like each individual sentence to be as nearly a complete poem as possible. One of the results of this compositional technique, building a work out of discrete fields, is the creation of sizable gaps between the units. To negotiate this disrupted terrain, the reader, and I can say also the writer, must overleap the end stop, the period, and cover the distance to the next sentence. Meanwhile, what stays in the gaps remains crucial and informative. Part of the reading occurs as the recovery of that information, looking behind, and the discovery of newly structured ideas, stepping forward. In both my life and resistance, the structural unit, grossly the paragraph, was meant to be mimetic of both a space and a time of thinking. In a somewhat different respect, time predetermines the form of Bernadette Mayer's Midwinter Day. The work begins when the clock is set running at dawn on December 22, 1978, and ends when the time allotted to the work runs out late night of the same day. It's true, Mayer has said, I have always loved projects of all sorts, including any sorting leaves or whatever projects turns out to be. And in poetry, I most especially love having time be the structure, which always seems to me to save structure or form from itself, because then nothing really has to begin or end. I'm gonna stop quoting here from um, Lynn's essay. To briefly say the previous episode, if you're following uh, these episodes sequentially on the podcast, in the previous episode, I uh, read um, an essay by Mac Wellman, uh, which is talking about playwriting and time. A play is time. Um, and in Wellman, uh, he talks about the composition of time in playwriting and that playwriting is the essential uh, unit. It is measured in time units over you know, its durational art form, it's measured in time units, and that what you're actually witnessing is the evolution of time. And I think there's something related here in Lynn quoting Bernadette Mayer in this discussion of poetry and time. So I'm just gonna repeat the Mayer quote that Lynn quotes. <laughs> um, and here is uh, the quote itself. I have always loved projects of all sorts, including say, sorting leaves or whatever projects turn out to be. And in poetry, I most especially love having time be the structure, which always seems to me to save structure or form from itself, because then nothing really has to begin or end. So then continues, whether the form is dictated by temporal constraints or by other exoskeletal formal elements, by a prior decision, for example, that the work will contain, say, X number of sentences, paragraphs, stanzas, stresses, or lines, etc. The work gives the impression that it begins and ends arbitrarily and not because there is a necessary point of origin or terminus, a first or last moment. 
The implication, correct, is that the words and the ideas, thoughts, perceptions, etc., the materials, continue beyond the work. One has simply stopped because one has run out of units or minutes, and not because a conclusion has been reached, nor everything said. The relationship of form or the constructive principle to the materials of the work, to its themes, conceptual mass, but also to the words themselves, is the initial problem for the open text, one that faces each writing anew. Can form make the primary chaos? The raw material, unorganized impulse, information, uncertainty, completeness, vastness, articulate without depriving it of its capacious vitality, its generative power. Can form go even further than that and actually generate that potency, opening uncertainty to curiosity, incompleteness to speculation, and turning vastness into plenitude? In my opinion, the answer is yes. That is, in fact, the function of form in art. Form is not a fixture, but an activity. So I'm going to stop there from, from reading Lynn's essay and, and just remark that this is, again, this sort of builds on something that is in Wellman's piece in the prior episode of this podcast of this season, thinking about a play as an activity that is being witnessed, an activity that is unfolding in time, in time units. Uh, it is not an activity that is fixed, in other words. It is in motion. Um, and we're watching it evolve. So, and I think this is a related idea. Uh, I'm going to jump a little bit here to um, yeah, I'm going to jump to uh, an example of some of Lynn's poetry because I think that might be helpful um, in a second. But let me uh, just continue just a brief moment uh, with. Um, Yeah, let's go to Lynn's poetry for a second. So I'm just going to do a slight detour from uh, this very complex but wonderful essay on the rejection of closure. And just to briefly kind of look at uh, some of the selections from my life and my life in the 90s, uh, published by Wesleyan University Press. Um, and this is from the edition uh, dated 2013, but its original edition was 1980, and it kept being updated uh, now over the years. Uh, so uh, the first, the first is my life. The next one is my life in the 90s. Um, so if you don't know this uh, this book, uh, I urge you to seek it out. Uh, it is. Um, Really wonderful. Uh, I'm going to look. It was original. It was originally um, 37 parts, and it was published in 1980. It was expanded in 1987 with 45 parts, uh, published by Sun and Moon Press, subsequently by Green Integer, wonderful uh, independent publishing company, uh, and then. Later, in 2003, uh, 
though the version called My Life in the 90s was written for shark books. Um, and so, you know, so this is, you could almost, you can, I wouldn't say almost, you can, uh, look at this as a kind of evolving work. And I think it's related to this idea of time that uh, Lynn talks about in terms of open, the rejection of closure. So I'm just going to look at the beginning couple of parts from uh, my life. Uh, this is starting with the, the first one. Uh, and if you don't know the way the, it looks on the page, um, again, I urge you to buy the book. But um, there's, in the edition, there's a kind of indent, uh, in the left-hand margin, there's a an indentation in, in italics, and there's a kind of phrase uh, in italics. And then on the right uh, is the text uh, laid out, uh, kind of in a block of text. Uh, so, so just to give you a visual of that. So here's uh, part one. A pause arose, something on paper. A moment yellow, just as four years later, when my father returned home from the war, the moment of greeting him, as he stood at the bottom of the stairs, younger, thinner than when he had left, was purple. Though moments are no longer so colored. Somewhere in the background, rooms share a pattern of small roses. Pretty is as pretty does. In certain families, the meaning of necessity is at one with the sentiment of pre-necessity. The better things were gathered in a pen. The windows were narrowed by white gauze curtains, which were never loosened. Here I refer to irrelevance, that rigidity which never intrudes. Hence, repetitions, free from all ambition. The shadow of the redwood trees, she said, was oppressive. The plush must be worn away. On her walk, she stepped into people's gardens to pinch off cuttings from their geraniums and succulents. An occasional sunset is reflected on the windows. A little puddle is overcast. If only you could touch or even catch those gray, great creatures. I was afraid of my uncle with a wart on his nose or of his jokes at our expense, which were beyond me, and I was shy of my aunt's deafness, who was his sister-in-law and who had years earlier falling into the habit of nodding agreeably. Wool station. Sea lightning, wait for thunder. Quite mistakenly, as it happened. Long timelines trail behind every idea, object, person, pet, vehicle, and event. The afternoon happens, crowded and therefore endless. Thicker, she agreed. It was a tick. She had the habit, and now she bobbed like my toy plastic bird on the edge of his glass, dipping into her, recoiling from the water. But a word is a bottomless pit. It became magically pregnant and one day split open, giving birth to a stone egg, almost as big as a football. In May, when the lizards, lizards emerge from the stones, the stones turn gray for green. When daylight moves, we the light and distance. The waves rolled over our stomachs like spring rain over an orchid slope. Rubber bumpers and rubber cars, the resistance on sleeping to being asleep. In every country is a word which attempts the sound of cats. To match an insoluble portrait in the clouds to a din in the air. But the constant noise is not an omen of music to come. Everything is a question of sleep, says Cocteau, but he forgets the shark, which does not. Anxiety is vigilant. Perhaps initially, even before one can talk, restlessness is already conventional, establishing the incoherent border which will later separate events from experience. 
find a drawer that's not filled up, <laughs> that we sleep plunges our work into the dark. The ball was lost in a bank of myrtle. I was in a room with the particulars of which a later nostalgia might be formed and indulge childhood. They are sitting in wicker chairs, the legs of which have sunk unevenly into the ground, so that each is sitting slightly tilted and their posture is made adjustment for that. The cows warm their own barn, I look at them fast, and it gives the illusion that they're moving. An oral history on paper. That morning, this morning, I say it about the psyche because it is not optional. The overtones are a denser shadow in the room characterized by its habitual readiness, a form of charged waiting, a perpetual attendance of which I was thinking when I began the paragraph. So much of childhood is spent in a manner of waiting. Part two. As for we who love to be astonished, you spill the sugar when you lift the spoon. My father had filled an old apothecary jar with what he called sea glass, bits of old bottles rounded and textured by the sea, so abundant on beaches. There is no solitude. It buries itself in veracity. It is as if one splashed in the water, lost by one's tears. My mother had climbed into the garbage can in order to stamp down the accumulated trash, but the can was knocked off balance, and when she fell, she broke her arm. She could only give a little shrug. Family had little money, but plenty of food. At the circus, only the elephants were greater than anything I could have imagined. The egg of Columbus, landscape and grammar. She wanted one where the playground was dirt, with grass shaded by a tree, from which would hang a rubber tire as a swing, and when she found it, she sent me. These creatures are compound, and nothing they do should surprise us. I don't mind, or I won't mind, where the verb to care might multiply. Pilot of the little airplane had forgotten to notify the airport of his approach, so that when the lights of the plane in the night were first spotted, the air raid sirens went off, and the entire city on the coast went dark. He was taking a drink of water, and the light was growing dim. My mother stood at the window, watching the only lights that were visible circling over the darkened city in search of the hidden airport. Unhappily, time seems more normative than place, whether breathing or holding the breath, it was the same thing, driving through the tunnel from one sun to the next under a hot brown hill. She sunned the baby for 60 seconds, leaving him naked, except for a blue cotton sunbonnet. At night, to close off the windows from view of the street, my grandmother pulled down the window shades, never loosening the curtains, a gauze starch too stiff to hang properly down. I sat on the windowsill singing, sunny, Lunny, Tina, ding, dang, dong. Out there is an aging magician who needs a tray of ice in order to turn his bristling breath into steam. He broke the radio silence. Now, why would anyone find astrology interesting when it is possible to learn about astronomy? What one passes in the Plymouth? It is the wind slamming the doors. All that is nearly incommunicable to my friends. Velocity and throat, verisimilitude. <laughs> Were we seeing a pattern or merely an appearance of small white sailboats on the bay, floating at such a distance from the hill that they appeared to be making no progress, and for once to a country that did not speak another language? To follow the progress of ideas with that particular line of reasoning, so full of surprises and unexpected correlation, was somehow to take a vacation. Still, you had to wonder where they had gone. 
Since you could speak of reappearance, a blue room is always dark. Everything on the boardwalk was shooting toward the sky. It was not specific to any year, but very early. A German goldsmith covered a bit of metal with cloth in the 14th century and gave humankind its first button. It was hard to know this as politics because it plays like the work of one person. But nothing is isolated in history. Certain humans are situations. Are your fingers in the margin? Their random procedures make monuments to fate. There is something still surprising when the green emerges. The blue fox has ducked its head. The front rhyme of harmless with harmony. Where is my honey running? You cannot linger on the land. You cannot determine the nature of progress until you assemble all of the relatives. So that's a selection from uh, the first two parts of my life. Uh, wonderful. The addition that I have is a, uh, obviously it's been published many times. I have the 2013 edition from Wesleyan, but um, it's just a terrific book. And again, celebrating Lynn and Lynn's uh, towering importance in the world of, of poetry. You know, it's a funny thing, poetry, it feels a little bit like it's the, the you know, the sort of, oh, how shall I say this? It's kind of like on the side of culture. <laughs> That's what I've been trying to say. You know, it's, it's sort of, um, speaking to culture, but it's also on the side of culture. And, and I mean that in multiple ways, which is that it's literally on the side looking in, outside looking in, but it's also like literally on the sidelines, um, often monetarily in, in terms of its uh, impact, certainly in the US. Um, we have poet laureates, but you know, by and large, you know, um, despite the, the wonderful resurgence of poetry and interest in it, um, it's still not a very well paid or, <laughs> you know, it's not a, it's not a, a profession that I think uh, is valued. Um, and I think in, in times that are increasingly chaotic and rep repressive, poetry becomes the outlier, right? It becomes the, the sort of, the, in some ways, the easy target for being the outlier, because what use is it, right? Um, in societies that are structured around usefulness and around value, monetary value, uh, instrumental value, uh, poetry's, uh, poetry cannot be instrumentalized. Uh, and so I think that that's, of course, it's power, part of its power, uh, but also something that I think makes people suspect of it. Uh, why would somebody write a poem? <laughs> You know, what are those poets doing over there, right? So I think that there is some, there's space that, that poetry occupies that is quite distinct. And I think that theater also occupies the space, but in a different way. Um, I essentially think that theater and poetry are united, that they are, they're, they're, they are on a continuum. Um, and I reject the notion that, um, that theater's value needs to be justified in the same way that, that somebody might say how to, how to justify the existence of poetry. 
I think it just is, just like theater just is. And I think that what complicates things with theater is that it's a, it is a public forum. Uh, and so it's, it becomes quite easy, I think, for systems of power, structures of power to want to instrumentalize it, right? To kind of like find ways to justify its existence uh, in concrete terms. Um, and I know, you know, there's a joke running around, you know, running around artists camps uh, where artists are talking, you know, always decrying, not always, but for, for a great part, I think decrying the idea of writing the artist statement, for example, it's like uh, when you're applying for grants and, and you're constantly being asked to justify what you're doing. Uh, why do you want to do this? You know, what what is, what is its impact? What is the classic grant question? What is its impact on the world? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. It's a poem. It's a play. Like, you know what I mean? I don't know what its impact on the world is going to be. You don't know. You make something because you want to speak to something or you want to explore something or you're trying to figure something out or um, you're being chased by an image or an idea or um, an odd notion, right? And, and you kind of want to go down that path and see what it reveals. Um, and I think there's a great danger in um, predetermining what the value of an artwork is before you even make it, you know, uh, but also predetermining it in the sense of this is related to this idea of branding, right? You know, it's sort of like a, if I, if I, you know, if I brand myself as an artist, right, uh, in quotation marks, I know what my brand is and that's where I'll deliver, you know? So there's, a, it's a kind of vicious circle, right? Because it's like you're, you become known for this. And so you do that. And, you, and in a way as an artist, as I've said, maybe here on this podcast or another's in conversation with, with people um, in both digital and physical spaces, I will say, you know, the, the thing about making art is that you're trying to break your habits, right? So that in a way it sort of resists branding because if you're constantly breaking habits, um, there is no brand, right? You know, the, the brand kind of evaporates. Um, and some would argue then that the brand becomes the brand of the person or the artist that doesn't uh, kind of um, deliver the same thing over and over again. Um, the, the double side to this is that, of course, as artists, we, are, we tend to, you know, uh, plow similar terrain. Um, there is something, it, because it's tied to consciousness, um, the art is, uh, is, a, is a kind of mapping of consciousness so that one play, one book, one poem, another poem, another play, another, they're all kind of like trying to map something, uh, apprehend the world in a certain way. Uh, look at it from different angles, look at yourself from different angles, right? Look at your communities, various communities that you're a part of from different angles, right? So there's a, there is continuity and there's a kind of um, path that is taken uh, in the development of an artist and their work. Um, but I, I don't think that that's quite the same as branding or um, 
branding is a little more conscious of itself, and I think it's tied to the idea of seeing the artwork as a product and seeing it as a commodity in the market, which is, I think, you know, a very dangerous, I know, this is going to seem terribly old-fashioned, but bear with me, a sort of very dangerous assumption to make about art. Um, in, in, in capitalism, the artist is constantly being asked to see their work as a product, see their work as a commodity in the market. Um, but I think that while there is a practical reality to knowing that in capitalism as an artist, you're gonna be in a position to pitch, sell those words, right? Pitch, sell the work. Um, that in a way, what you're not doing, what you have to stop yourself from doing is thinking that the work is that, that the work is the pitch and the sell of it, yeah? Um, Mark Ravenhill, a wonderful playwright, um, has this play called Product. I might read from it, actually, in a future episode or maybe the next episode. I've been thinking about that play quite a bit. Um, and it's, it's structured, if memory serves, I haven't read it in ages, but if memory serves, it, it's structured as a, as a kind of pitch for a screenplay. Um, it's kind of like, you know, a writer makes an executive and they're pitching. Um, it then becomes a you know, a play about, like a lot of Mark's work, a kind of critique of capitalism and a, and a, and a look, a very satirical look at what happens to storytelling uh, when it is treated like product, right? Um, so I'll mention that. Um, long about way of saying, I hope you celebrate Lynn Hegedian's work um, as a poet, essayist, and translator. Um, again, today was just a way to celebrate and to point you in their direction with two excerpts from my life, uh, their towering book, and also uh, from their selection from their essay on the rejection of closure. And that's today's episode. As always, this is about you and I in this theater. You're there in the dark, and I here wondering who you are. Thanks for listening today for night.